0: All right, everybody. Welcome. And I want to uh, welcome a couple of folks who are here this week that weren't with us last week. This is Jesse right here, and Jake is in the uh, back. Welcome, guys. Glad you could join us. I also want to talk bad about the people who were with us last week who aren't back, (laughs) Includes my wife, who normally sits through these and endures these as I go through it. But because they're doing the kids thing out in the auditorium, she wanted to be out there for that. So she's not, she's not in here. But welcome back to the rest of you. And I should tell you that instead of going to noon like we normally do, 11.15 to noon, uh, we are only going 30 minutes uh, because the last 15 minutes of that presentation is a video. The kids are doing a song. And Emma and Annie, my Annie, is supposed to be here. So I'll talk bad about her behind her back. Hopefully she'll come rolling in here in a minute. But they are being promoted. So they're part of it. But at the end, so we'll all, at 11.45, we'll go in there for the last 15 minutes. I don't know how many seats will be in there for us. We might have to just stand along the back wall, but that, that's what we'll do. So I'm setting an alarm here for 11.43, okay? So bear with me one second. All right. When that thing goes Talk off, we'll let take off, okay? <laughs> I was talking bad about you. And your mother as well. <laughs> all right, page 10. And lesson two of four. This is our newcomer's orientation in which we try to give you an idea about who we are and where we've come from and what we believe and what we're trying to accomplish, all of that. Last week, we looked at the fact that we try to be an intentional church. That was the title of last week, an intentional church. So what we do, we do intentionally, that is we structured our church in a way that we are intentionally trying to carry out objectives that God has given us in the New Testament for His His Church. We don't do things just because we've always done them that way, but rather intentionally because they, we think they help us move toward uh, the functions that God has given us in the New Testament. Hey, hey, whoa! <laughs> what are you doing? Can come in? Of course, yeah. Come on, get a book. Yeah, grab a book right there. Vince, Vince, get a book right there. There you go. Page 10. Welcome, guys. So we seek to be an intentional church, and one example of that intentionality is the fact that uh, we have second hour as our educational hour. Our first hour is the worship hour. That's reversed from what I grew up with. We always had Sunday school first, then we had worship. The Bible doesn't prescribe either of those. And I gave you last week the rationale, the reasons for why we do it that way. If you weren't able to be here, these sessions are all recorded. That's what that is. It's not a microphone. It's just a recorder. And uh, you can hear that online, and you can hear the rationale for that. So last week, we seek to be an intentional church. And then today, page 10, you see lesson two is we seek to be a, a healthy church. And in the middle of in the middle of page 10 you see the box that says our vision is to be a healthy community of faith well that raises the question what does a healthy church look like and this lesson is about the pro what we think is the profile of a healthy church top there you see roman numeral one health produces growth our objective ought to be church health not church growth churches that are about numbers then we'll do whatever is necessary to get those numbers the truth is, if we just want numbers, we can put as many numbers in here as we want, as long as we're willing to sell our souls to the culture in order to do it. But we're not. Uh, there are uh, there are principles in God's word, and most importantly, there is what God tells us about him and his character that dictate that the things we do and the way we do them need to be consistent with who he is. And uh, entertainment, just... Uh, titillating the uh, desires of the, the world uh, are not consistent with god's character and yet they are what's happening in our churches today and they do get big numbers believe me so if all you're worried about is numbers there are lots of ways to get that but if you consider coming here uh, please understand we're not first about numbers we're first about being healthy And then as a byproduct of that, we do expect then that numbers will come. Healthy things, all things being equal, grow. And you see an example of that in Acts chapter 6. I have a reference for you there, but I just quickly am going to remind you about what Acts chapter 6 says. In the book of Acts, you have the beginning of the church. The very first church that ever existed came into being in Acts chapter 2 in the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that on the very first day of the founding of the church, as the gospel went out, 3,000 people on that first day responded. Then as you go through chapters 4 and 5, it tells you that um, still more people came to the faith. And then by the time you come to chapter 6, verse 1 says, In those days the number of disciples was increasing. So the idea as you come to chapter six is in addition to those three thousand in chapter two, in addition to what chapters four and five say about still more people coming to Christ and being part of the church, then you come to chapter six, and there's still more people coming. Well, you can see how that would create that could create a problem. In a short period of time, you had a you had thousands of people who came to the Lord and they are all amassed in this one church. It's the only church that exists in Jerusalem. And one of the problems that created was this, that there were widows in the church who needed uh, benevolence. They needed financial assistance. And the church uh, helped helped the widows with food distribution. But a dispute arose, Acts chapter 6 says, because the uh, Grecian widows, that's what it says, felt that the Hebraic widows were being shown favoritism. So what is that all about? Now, here's what it's all about. The reason you've got these Grecian widows and these Hebraic widows, I'll explain what that is in a second, but the reason you've got them all amassed there in Jerusalem is because, if you remember, when the church started in Acts chapter 2, it was on something called the Day of Pentecost. And Pentecost was a feast, a festival, going back to your Old Testament, that took place 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 and so it's 50 days after Passover and that's the festival that was happening in Jerusalem and the Bible says in Acts 2 that there were there in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven that's what it says so you have the population of Jerusalem swelling for this annual festival that they have. but then the church starts and the Holy Spirit comes and there's this outpouring and these people come to Jesus And now they'd come to Jerusalem as Jews practicing Judaism. And now they've become Christians. And many of them didn't go home. They didn't go back to their homes. They stayed there because they were convinced Jesus was returning soon. And where's he going to return to? He's going to return to Jerusalem. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives from Acts chapter 1 says that's where he ascended back to the Father. He's going to return to that very place. So many of those people who came didn't go back home. That's why when you come to Acts chapter 4, it says they had everything in common. That is, they shared their stuff. Because you got people who had come for a week who are now staying for months. And that's why you have these widows who have these needs. When you come to Acts chapter 6, you got these Grecian widows, Hebraic widows. Now, the Hebraic widows were widows that had Hebrew background. And they lived in and around Jerusalem. So they were the people that were known to the area and known to many that were in the first church. The Grecian widows were the people who lived in the outlying They are the ones who had come from far away. And that's in all likelihood why they believed that they were being shorted because they're the outsiders, the Grecian widows. So they complained that favoritism was being shown to the Hebraic widows. And the apostles... Jesus' chosen first followers, the leaders of that first church, Acts 6 tells us that they met together, and they said, we've got to come up with a solution to this. And they suggested to the congregation that they choose seven men full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit who can take care of this issue so that we, the apostles, can give our attention to the ministry of prayer and the word. So this is the beginning of the office of a deacon. They started the office of a deacon to take care of them, And they chose these seven men. And it gives the seven names in Acts chapter 6. Now here's what's interesting about those seven names. They're all uh, Greek names. They chose seven men from among the Grecian group. Because that was the group that was complaining. And to show and go out of their way to show that we're not showing favoritism. And rather we're impartial. They chose all seven guys from that group to be in charge of the distribution of of food and the last verse in that passage verse seven says this so now that word so is important like therefore because all of this happened because they took action because they came up with a plan because it was a wise plan the number of disciples increased so remember verse one says in those days the number of disciples was increasing then in between you've got this problem. They address the problem, so the number of disciples increased, implying if they hadn't addressed this problem, that that could have inhibited the continued growth of the of the church. All right. Now I'll give you all that top of page ten. You see that paragraph. Our objective ought to be church health, not growth. A vital or healthy church is marked by these three things, spiritual vitality, functional effectiveness, and statistical or numerical growth in its life and ministry. What I just explained to you is a model of that. So those three things, you've got spiritual vitality, functional effectiveness, all things being equal results in numerical statistical growth. But what you want to concentrate on as a healthy church are those two things, being spiritually alive, spiritually vital. And functionally effective. And that's what that church in Jerusalem apparently was. They showed their spiritual vitality by understanding we can't neglect prayer in the Word. But they also knew that they had to be functionally effective. The stuff has to get done, and it has to get done well. So they chose people to do it, and they delegated to those people to do it. Now, in our churches, you often see one of those, but not both of them. You can go to a church that's spiritually vital. They believe the Bible, they preach the Bible, but the trains don't run on time. They're not functionally effective. The left hand never knows what the right hand's doing. You can go to churches that work like clockwork. Like a fine-tuned machine. They're functionally effective, but they're not spiritually vital. But in order to have a healthy church, you've got to have both of those. Spiritual vitality and functional effectiveness. If you do, all things being equal. So health produces growth now we want to dive in quickly through these vital signs of a healthy church and on the pages that follow we've got seven of these vital signs of a healthy church that i'd like to to go through and they're not in particular order these seven vital signs of a healthy church that we believe the new testament teaches other than the first one the first one is first on purpose then the others could be in in different order but the very first one is a healthy church needs to be a gospel-driven church. The gospel of salvation by grace is the foundation, the formation, and the stimulation for a healthy church. The gospel is the glorious message of that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Now I say that we need, if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a gospel-driven church. And everybody here would expect that I would say that. You know, would you go to a church and they say, no, we don't want to be gospel-driven? Uh, maybe, but probably not, okay? So saying that, practically, what does that mean if, you're, if you really are gospel-driven? Or conversely, what does it mean not to be gospel-driven? Well, it means a few things. Let me just quickly share. One, you seek to give the gospel uh, regularly. You seek to give the gospel message. If you're driven by the gospel, then you give the gospel message on a regular basis, inviting people to have the opportunity to trust Christ as Savior. So often when I preach during the first hour, not always, but often, at the end I have a screen that we've used for years and where we say, this is how you receive Christ. And we've got these uh, four four actions that start with an R that you uh, realize that you're a sinner that you recognize that Christ died for your sin that you repent of your sin and then you receive Christ as Savior and, and Lord so we put that up on the screen and we invite people as we pray to to do that very thing so if you're going to be a gospel driven church on a regular basis you're inviting people to, to trust Christ but also you're a church if you're gospel driven that accepts all comers. Now, what I mean by that is again, you know, no church is going to say you can't come in here, generally. You know, maybe a, 50 years ago in the Deep South, if you were in a segregated church and you went in as an African American, tried to go in as an African American, they would say you can't come here. Horribly, but you know, they would. But, you know, here, I can't think of any church that would say you can't come in here. So nobody is going to explicitly say you can't come in here, but we can't imply that you really don't fit in, here, right? And there are lots of ways to do that. And if you're gospel-driven, you're going to be careful not to put up unnecessary barriers to all comers. Now, some of them are, you know, they're they're well-intended, but one, for example, is is dress. You can communicate a message at your church that if you're going to come here. You need to know how to dress. And there's a particular uniform we have. Now, if somebody called the church and said, hey, what do I need to wear? Every Just about every church would say, look, come, come however you want. But if they come however they're comfortable coming and everybody else is in a uniform, then they quickly get the idea, right? Now, when I was a kid, when I grew up, everybody uh, wore a coat and a top. And the women all wore dresses. And uh, then when I was a young adult, and I, get, I was a computer programmer, and I got a job doing that, when I went to the office back in those days, everybody wore a coat and tie. That was what the culture did. But now almost nobody wears a coat and tie to almost anything. In fact, many people don't even own a coat and tie at all, literally don't. If they go to a function where a coat and tie is required, they gotta, they got to find one. So if you're going to be gospel-driven, you're going to try to eliminate unnecessary barriers uh, like, like that. Here's, here's an, another one. is If you're going to be driven by the gospel so that you, you welcome all comers, uh, you you want to be a place, here's the phrase I use, where it is safe to be a sinner. If you're a gospel-driven church, it's a church where it's safe to be a sinner. Now, I don't mean it's okay to sin. I hope that would be obvious. But what I do mean is you have an environment and a culture where people understand that we are all sinners. And when you come in here, whatever your baggage is, whatever your sin habits are, whatever your problems are, that's Jesus died for your sins, whatever they are, just like he died for my sins. And so we want to help you with it. And we don't want you to feel as though you can't come here because these people have it together and I'm down here. So we are not up here. In fact, the whole reason that we need the cross and we need Jesus is because we're not up here. Okay. Now, what will happen in a church that communicates that in the way they teach, in their, in their attitude, in their informal conversations, that you're welcome here no matter what your baggage is, we want to help you with that. One of the things that will happen is people will deal with their struggles rather than bury them and try to hide them. Because you see, they now know it's okay for me to do this. It's okay for me to come forward and say, I've got a problem. But if you don't create that kind of environment, then what people will do is this. People in your church still all have a bunch of problems, but they don't deal with them. They just bury them and hide them. And then what happens is everybody's shocked, absolutely shocked, when sin happens well the truth is we shouldn't be shocked when sin happens should we (laughs) given that there's every person in this room sitting here and standing here and out there every last one of us are sinners okay so that's just some of what it means then to be a gospel driven church vision motivated a healthy church is motivated by a vision for a preferable future that God is is leading us to. We're going to go from here to there by God's grace. Our vision is what we're going to be by God's grace. Our mission is what we're going to do. And since being precedes doing, it's important that we have a grasp of our vision. That is what we seek to be before what we do. We seek to be this healthy church, and if God by His grace allows us to be this profile, then in turn we can do our mission, which is to help people learn about God, love Him, and others and live for his purpose. And so, so that's what our vision and mission is. And as part of that, then, if we have a vision to be a healthy church and then flowing out of that, we want to see the great commission that Christ gave advanced by helping people learn, love, and live. If if that's what we do, then the church will move forward and we as leadership have to give people a vision for what that looks like. We have to give you an idea as what, by god's grace if he allows us to move forward what will our church look like in five years what will it look like in 10 years so practically how do we do that here's how Uh, when our church started 15 years ago it'll be 15 years in september we laid out a 15-year plan so you're coming to us in the last year of our 15-year plan and every year at uh, our what we call our servant seminars that happened in the fall, I start them by reminding people of what our 15-year plant vision was. And then we set for that year four or five things out of that vision that we want to accomplish this year. So every year we're ticking off some of these things. Now, here we are 15 years later, and by God's grace, he's allowed us to accomplish most of them. We haven't been able to accomplish all of them, but we've been able to accomplish most of them. One of them was to finally get into a building of our own. That happened three years ago. But we have this list of things. Now we have to start a new vision statement. So we're working on our 10-year plan. We had a 15-year plan. Now we're working on a 10-year plan. Why a 10-year plan? Because I'm getting older. And did I tell you guys this last week? that if uh, So the older I get, the shorter the plans get. So we're doing a 10-year plan, then a 5-year plan. When I get to the 6-month plan, start planning my funeral, all right? So we'll do a 10-year plan, and on November 6th of this year, is our celebration, our anniversary dinner, celebration dinner, November 6th. And in the auditorium, we'll have a dinner, and we will lay out our 10-year plan uh, that will be, by God's grace, what we hope to accomplish, okay? All right, bottom of page 10. Third of the seven vital signs is authentic worship. And you've got principles and practices of worship. Principles include worship must be God-centered,
1: word-centered,
0: regulated, sacred, corporate, and holistic. Now, I want to go through those. They're important, so I want to go through them, but I have to do it quickly. Stay with me. Everybody would say their worship is God-centered. Again, just like gospel-centered. Would anybody say, no, the worship's not Our worship isn't God-centered. So practically, how will you know if your worship is God-centered? Well, one way is to just informally gauge from people as they leave, what kind of comments do they make? about the service is it focused on God's truth being preached is it man that was a cool service is it focused on the entertainment value of the service because lots of churches as I told you aim toward this entertainment kind of idea but if a church is consistently God centered and word centered what you will hear from people is I'm learning more about God I'm learning more about what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm learning more about God's God's Word by coming to by coming to this church. So it needs to be God centered. It needs to be Word centered. It needs to be regulated. Now, what's that mean? Some of you are familiar with the Protestant Reformation, uh, 500 years ago. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, all of these guys left the Catholic Church, protested the church and sought to reform it. Ended up leaving it. And one of the issues that the Protestant Reformation uh, had at the fore was accusing, rightly, the Roman Catholic Church of having put things in the worship of God that are not given in Scripture. And they came up with what they call the regulative principle of worship. That the only things you should do in worship are things God has authorized to be done in worship in the Bible because God cares really deeply about the formal act of his people gathering in his presence for worship so you only do the things that he says now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this but the simple components of our worship service songs prayer offering preaching every one of those is explicitly offer authorized in the Bible and that's why and that's why we're not going to do anything else so let me just clue you in now if you're here for 5 years or 10 years or 15 years and God gives me a uh, life for 5 or 10 or 15 years we won't be we won't be doing anything other than what we're doing now okay because that's what God has authorized us to do now so we won't be doing skits we won't be doing entertainment we'll be doing that stuff okay now uh It's really important that you stay with what God has regulated and and prescribed to do. Because, here's what the Bible says. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Here's what it says. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably. What does that imply? It's possible to worship God how? Unacceptably. So let us worship God acceptably. And then it says this, with reverence and awe. And then it says why? Verse 29, for because our God is a consuming fire. So what's the consuming fire piece got to do with it? It's saying you worship God acceptably, which means reverence and awe, because God is angry. He's a consuming fire when he is not worshipped as he has authorized. And you know in the Bible there are examples of that. couple guys named nadab and abihu they were killed by god for for worshiping in an unacceptable way so it needs to be regulated we only do the stuff that god has given us to do worship is sacred and sacred means set apart and what that means is when we gather as god's people what we do at that time is not the same as going to a ball game it's not the same as going to an entertainment venue it's set apart it is it is something that happens that can only happen when God's people are gathered and God's presence is invoked, and we and we worship Him. So it needs to be treated that way. Uh, if you go into many churches today, I, I've heard this dozens of times over. The years. People tell me I went to so and so church, ton of people there, it was like a rock concert, and when I came out, I didn't feel like I had been at church. I didn't feel like I'd been to church, and that's what—that's part of what that means. There's nothing sacred about it. There's nothing worshipful about it. That's explicitly directed toward God. Now, get this next one: worship is corporate, Congre- and you might—you could work, put the word congregational next to worship is. Con- that's what we mean by corporate. We mean the whole body, as opposed to individualistic. That's what that means. It's congregational instead of individualistic. Now, I'm going to get this point across, and then I'll have to quit here in a minute and pick this up next week. But I'm turning my alarm off. But this is an important point. It'll be my last one for today. Worship is corporate, congregational, as opposed to individualistic. So if you've been to our worship service, you notice the culture that we've created in our worship service. You don't see a lot of people, maybe you don't see any people, I don't really know because I'm, I'm in the front row when we're singing, so I don't see who's behind me, so I, don't, I don't know what's going on, <laughs> but you don't see a lot of people like raising their hands. Now why? Is it because raising your hands is wrong? The answer is no, it's not wrong. Uh, is it because if someone in our church raises their hands, the ushers have been trained to carry them out of the building? <laughs> no. So why haven't we set that standard? Why don't we do that? I mean, lots of churches, in fact, most churches today, if you feel like doing your thing, you do your thing. So some people will be doing this. Some people will be dancing. Some people will be, people are doing their thing. Okay? Well, here's why. Because as I've gone through the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, and you look at when God's people are gathered together, The expressions of their worship are together. They're not individualistic. Did you know that? So, as you read, for example, in Nehemiah and in Ezra, as God's people came together, it says, and all the people raised their hands. It says, all the people raised their hands. Not a few people got excited and raised their hands. Everybody did. So, I'm raising my hand here. Nobody's carrying me out, it can happen. It would be fine for us to have a time, for us to, and maybe we'll do this at some point, where we say, let's all raise our hands of praise to the Lord. Because that's a congregational expression of praise to the Lord. Even with the amen, some of you have been in churches where you grew up, and if somebody liked in the crowd liked what you said, they'd say, amen. You notice that doesn't happen at our place either. And again, nobody gets carried out if they say amen. There have been times where people do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if you go back to the Old Testament, here's what it says. It says, and all the people said, amen. That's why when I pray, when I pray, at the end I say, and all of God's people said. We say the amen together. So worship is designed not to be your individual moment with Jesus. It's designed to be our time together before God. It's congregational. It's corporate. And so the expressions of worship are not individual. They are us doing this. They are us doing this together. So I'm telling you that. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. That's why we've tried to instill that kind of culture here. If you're a hand raiser, nobody's going to carry you out. If you're an amen nobody's going to carry you out. But I'm just telling you that's why, we, that's why we do it. Okay? All right. If you have any questions about any of that, let me know. 1145, let's head on into the auditorium.